0: Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast with Kareem Farah, Kate Gaskell, and me, Zach Diamond. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self paced, and mastery based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast. Hello, and welcome
1: to episode number 36 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project, and I'm joined by the wonderful Zach Diamond. Zach, how are you?
0: I am doing great, Kareem. I'm excited to be here.
1: I'm excited as well. These are always some of our favorite to record. We're doing a Q&A episode today, so we have a bunch of questions that we found through our Ask MCP opportunity where folks can just kind of present questions they want to answer on the podcast. A couple came through our website, a couple are we found on social media, and we just want to take an opportunity to discuss a variety of interesting questions from teachers and leaders. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, and I always find these super interesting. So let's do it. We're gonna go ahead and get
0: started. Zach, do you want to start us off? Sure. So this first question says, how do you handle assignments that you don't grade? I'm testing out the modern classrooms model for my current unit, and I'm finding that grading everything is exhausting, but I want students to revise their work.
1: You know, this is such an interesting question because it kind of hits at the core idea of like, why do we grade in the first place? Now, I'm personally not in the classroom now, so I'm actually more interested to hear your thoughts first, Zach, and then I'll chime in with any thoughts I have. Why don't you take this first?
0: Yeah, sure. I feel like the model is actually... I've. I've said this before on the podcast that I was always looking for a way to do in-class grading and to to grade more so that students could revise their work and they could get more frequent feedback from me. And the model gave me the answer. I don't grade in the sense of assigning an actual grade. I don't grade almost any of the work that my students submit just as a percentage of what they submit to me. The, The mastery checks they submit, they get a grade of either zero or one. And that's not hard for me to assign because I just look at it. And I, you know, I'm They're submitting screenshots of their work in a, in an online digital audio workstation. I teach music. So it's just a screenshot and I can see pretty much at a glance if they did it right and I'll give them the one, or if they did it wrong, I'll give them a zero and they'll have to revise it. And so I don't consider that to be grading, but I do consider it to be, you know, evaluation and feedback. And then it gives them the opportunity to revise. And that is not overwhelming to me. I can grade in quotes and making air quotes, you know, I can review 10 or 15 of those assignments in 10 minutes. And it's, it's really made it possible for me to to see all this student work that's happening on a much more granular day-to-day, minute-to-minute uh, level.
1: Yeah, no, it's super interesting. Um, and I think you teach a pretty interesting content and grade level. So some folks might find that super relatable. Other folks might find that Quite different. So, I'm kind of curious what listeners <laughs> will think about that. That's fair. I can certainly talk about my classroom. So, when I was teaching high school math, the unnegotiable for me or the non negotiable was I had to grade mastery checks. There's just like nothing you can do to eliminate the need to grade every mastery check. If you're not grading the mastery checks, then you run into a real problem. So, that was my baseline. Most of my lessons, if they weren't part of the projects that I did for each unit, would have some sort of assignment and then some sort of mastery check. The mastery checks were the first thing I thought about, but I also did try to spot check every assignment. And what I did was I kind of identified on each assignment, like, what are the sort of novel portions or questions? So if the assignment was, you know, two pages split up into five sections or five kind of topics or five sort of problems they had to try to solve, they all kind of had a different component to them. So I would say like, I'm going to check one question from each of these sections, or these three questions on this assignment are the three most important ones. If a student can do those three, then they likely understand the skill. And I would spot check it that way. In some cases, I wouldn't even do that for certain students who I knew were kind of traveling through the content fairly smoothly and were mastering, che- mastering uh, mastery checks quite comfortably. And then for students who I knew were hitting a lot of roadblocks or had a tendency sometimes to be overly reliant on a peer to the point where I wasn't exactly confident that they were actually understanding the skill and maybe we're just kind of gathering a lot of info from one of their friends or someone that they work with and then we're getting to the mastery checks and struggling I would watch those a little bit closer ultimately I derived a lot of comfort in the fact that a student is just not going to get the mastery check right if they don't understand the skill so If I'm falling behind and don't get the chance to grade every assignment, that's okay as long as I focus on the mastery check. And if they don't do well on the mastery check, I'm going to go back to their assignment and be like, hold on a second. Uh, What did you do on this assignment? Did you actually understand the skill? Did you work too much with a peer to the point where you didn't actually do the work? You know, and kind of figure out what the issue is. The reason why I do like spot checking assignments is because I do think that's where some of the best revision happens. You know, I really enjoyed going through 25 assignments in a class period. And and as kind of crazy as this sounds, I really enjoyed putting R at the top of their papers and changing the tracker to revise and then having really great discussions about what they missed or what they didn't quite understand about that particular assignment. You can do that with mastery checks as well, but there's something sort of rich and exciting about doing it with the actual assignment itself because ultimately that's where the bulk of the work is happening. So that's how I uh, thought about it. and I know a ton of educators use a very similar approach to basically somewhere in between grading every single mastery check and grading every assignment to just grading the mastery checks. And like, you kind of just start with what your capacity is, with the understanding that you can't do anything less than grading every mastery check and then building up from there. And with the idea that the more feedback you can give students, the better. So if you have the capacity to, try to grade all the assignments. But if it's overwhelming, pick some flashpoint questions on each assignment. And if that's too overwhelming, just focus on the mastery checks and then only go back to the assignments if the mastery checks are problematic.
0: Yeah, one one thing I'll add, and I totally agree, and I love this idea of a spot check. I feel like that is what I do. It's like I just glance at it and I can see whether the student needs to revise or not. It might not be a full grade Like it might not be me grading the thing, uh, but I can look at it and see. And and I think that it a big part of the work that I've done in developing my modern classroom is like on the instructional design side, coming up with mastery checks that can be spot checked. You know, that are small enough in scale that I'm not you know reading through paragraphs of text, or I'm not looking through tons of problems trying to figure out if the student gets it. Like it's it was a, a matter of boiling down the mastery check to something that I that I could spot check at a glance and see if the student got it or if they needed to revise.
1: Totally. And you know, one one thing that I think because of just like grading structures and A through F scales and testing, I think sometimes we forget that like what you're trying to understand is whether or not the kid's ready for the next thing. Right. And really focusing on that core concept. And sometimes it's not that linear. Right. So you may be an English teacher out there, a history teacher out there thinking not everything's linear. And I totally agree. So it's also not always about just making sure they're prepared for the next skill. But I often framed it for myself that way, which was like, am I confident this kid is ready to travel on with this scope and sequence? If not, Mm -hmm. I have to intervene. I mean, that's kind of the core idea that we think about when you apply it to the systems and structures you've created in the classroom. So I would treat that the same way with grading. Like, what do I actually need to see? about my students' work to know that they're ready for the next lesson. That's ultimately where you have to figure out how to grade. And the mastery check is the biggest backstop there. But certainly there's elements of assignments
0: that I think are valuable too. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's let's transition on to the next question. This next question says, is the model better designed for students in older grade levels? How does elementary differ from middle school slash high school? This is
1: such an interesting question that I get daily, um, especially in my role. Because I'm oftentimes meeting with school and district leaders, nonprofit leaders who are trying to figure out a way to empower more teachers with our model. And so often I get this question. And I will say, I think the primary reason it is even a question, like the only reason to me that people actually ask this, is because everyone's anchored to the Edutopia video. And the Edutopia video obviously shows two high school classrooms. And it's... Just a really well done video because Edutopia is brilliant. Um, And naturally, it just anchors everyone to that kind of structure. What I always tell folks is our model actually emulates an elementary classroom more than it emulates a secondary classroom. The reason why I say that is if you go into an elementary classroom that isn't a modern classroom, you're going to see significantly more student-centered teaching. It is just intuitive to a kindergarten teacher or a second grade teacher that there's just no way you can deliver live information in a whole group instruction lecture format for 10, 20, 30 minutes. It's just not how younger students' attention spans work. It just doesn't make much sense that way. Elementary teachers are also used to models like station rotation models that are oftentimes, you know, a a teacher working with a group of students and the other kids doing something else. So the simple answer is no, it's not better designed for students in older grade levels. Um, It's designed quite well for all grade levels. It is anchored at the secondary and particularly the middle and the high school level, partially because we as founders were teachers at that level. So the first group of teachers we trained were at that grade level. And you know the first round of mentors we had developed were at that grade level. But as soon as we started training elementary teachers, it was so incredibly clear to me, the first group of elementary teachers we trained were in Bellwood, Um, out in pennsylvania is they were just absolutely brilliant at the implementation of it where the changes it's not even really changes where the things you need to think about if you're doing it at a different grade level particularly with younger students is one where in the scope of their day are they learning in a quote-unquote modern classroom you know an elementary teacher is not going to take all blocks of the day and convert it to this style the second thing you got to think about is just the degree of self-direction you want to think about with students How long uh, a period of time are they self-pacing? Is it one week at a time, three weeks at a time, a month at a time? But what I would just generally say is do not underestimate the capacity of a younger student to be a self-directed learner. In fact, I actually think in many cases, the younger students are the best self-directed learners. And it's the older students who are used to highly sort of sit and listen models where they aren't at the center of the learning experience and will express the most pushback.
0: Yeah, I have, you know, I couldn't say it any better than that. I completely agree. As a middle school teacher myself, I, what I'll add is that, you know, I I learned the model from you. Uh Actually, you personally trained me. And I also saw your classroom. And that's essentially the model that I took to my classroom when I first started rolling it out. And, you know, I had to make some changes to my own personal style of teaching and my own interpretation of the model, particularly for my younger students. But what did not change is the sort of Philosophical foundation of the model, which is blended learning, self-paced, and mastery-based learning, right? And those those three things, they work in K through twelve, through you know, bachelor's degree, master's degree. I feel like it's it's just a, a more effective way of learning. It doesn't matter how old you are. There are obviously some unique considerations at every level, but the model itself and the and the pedagogical philosophical foundation of the model is applicable at any level.
1: And I will add, one of the best ways I know this to be true is. It was just actually a couple months ago that I was on a meeting with a group of university professors. Now, these were professors teaching at a very strong university, and they were implementing the model. And it was so interesting to hear that the challenges they were facing were no different than the challenges teachers at the K-12 grade levels were facing. And it kind of taught me this idea that, like, even college students are not particularly great at being self-directed learners. And it has nothing to do actually with their age and everything to do with what they've been exposed to as learners, which is why if students have been exposed to environments that are continuously reinforcing the idea of I sit, I listen, I take down notes, I regurgitate, then they're not actually you know, really well-equipped to be in the driver's seat of the learning experience and they need the model the most, but they actually will potentially express the most pushback. And that really has nothing to do with grade level. And oftentimes the younger kids have been least conditioned in that way, which is super, super interesting. Yeah, Awesome. Let's go ahead and pivot to the next question. Um, I really like this one because I don't actually think I've answered it in a while. And I'm super curious to hear your thoughts, Zach. The question is, what structures and systems outside of your normal class period, your sort of 8 to 3.30 Day are helpful in supporting a modern classroom.
0: Yeah, so it was interesting when I first read this question. My first take was it was sort of like I realized that my my sense of the the boundaries of my class, you know, the periods that I teach, are a little bit less solid than they were before modern classrooms because of how accessible modern classrooms is outside of class. You know, a student could be one hundred percent engaged in my class, learning, working, you know, at seven in the evening. Because they're doing it from home. And so the modern classrooms model itself gives the students a lot of power to, to learn outside of class, you know, the class period. What I think I would say as my answer to the question is that the data that is provided by the model in the, in the, in my pacing tracker, right, is so valuable in communicating with parents. I would definitely consider that to be non class time work that I do. And when I can say to a parent, Lesson four is on pace, but your child is on lesson three. So we need to help help him find some time to catch up and finish lesson three so that he can be on pace. Or I can, you know, send out automated emails to the whole entire class. I mentioned this on the last episode of the podcast that I was on. I've like written about it on my blog. It's it's like a huge thing that I've implemented. It's not a big deal, but it's so powerful to be able to send 150 emails to parents because I have the data in my pacing tracker. And so that is definitely a huge benefit to me that comes from the model, uh, not directly to my teaching, but clearly to the, to the learning of my students. Totally. I mean, I think it's a super
1: interesting one is like how you engage with parents and just provide open accessibility. A lot of folks will make things like a parent module um, or just like sort of a, a digital syllabus to allow folks to kind of constantly check in on what's going on in the classroom. When I read this question, I took it in a different direction, which was like, how do we create space for students to access learning when it's not their particular class period? So I have a couple of thoughts on this. One, I think it it hits at a really core equity issue, which is one of the reasons that I believe so deeply in sharing this model with as many teachers as possible, is I think it's pretty inequitable. It's deeply unproductive to say, hey, I'm going to deliver live information to my students. And if you don't make it to that live delivery of information, you missed out on the bulk of the learning experience. Right. Right. And one of the things we have to be aware of with students is if they're not able to make it to class, oftentimes it's out of their control. And a lot of times what they would love to have is just a safe space to work, potentially that's quiet, that has access to the resources necessary to do the work. So I really, really loved as much as possible. Obviously, teachers are literally the busiest people in the world. So we have to be very conscious of teacher time. But I really liked creating an open door policy and creating these really unstructured hours where anyone could just come into my classroom. So I'd pick certain days in the week and I'd just be like, I'm here till 5pm on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Sometimes, by the way, I wasn't even available to help. I would just be like my my door's open. I'm going to be in the room. I'm actually doing my own work. I'm grading. But you can come in here. You can grab a computer. If you have a question, put your name on the board. And as soon as I'm done doing my thing, I can come in and check in with you. But it created a safe space and a structure for kids to catch up or get ahead if they knew that they were going to you know, have something that was going to stop them from being in class down the road. And I did a similar structure with lunch. Again, a lot of times I'd say, I'm actually not talking to anyone during lunch, but you can come in here. And I even did this, and this is totally up to your school building and your school leaders and all the systems and structures at your school. But I even did that with my class periods. So a kid would sometimes come in to my fourth period class who wasn't in my fourth period class. Maybe they had lunch then based on the way the schedule was. Maybe they were a senior who didn't have classes all period. Or maybe another teacher said they were ahead of the game and they could pop into my class for 30 minutes to catch up. So I really liked creating the structure where, look... I am the leader of a learning space and that learning space welcomes kids who want to continue to push forward through content and have good discussions as long as they're following sort of core class policies they're not disrupting their peers they're using their time productively and all that good stuff and I encourage folks to also think about especially if you have if you can make an impact on sort of the larger scale of your school is like how can you also create systems and structures for kids to be able to have a safe place to access the content through the learning management system, even when it's not your classroom. So at Eastern where the Edutopia video was filmed, we actually had a power hour model. The power hour was an hour after school where teachers would stay in their room. So if I wasn't staying for power hour, cause I don't stay on Wednesdays, I knew the teachers who were staying for power hour. And I could also tell those teachers, Hey, these seven kids from my math class are going to be coming in. They're going to be working on, Lessons 2, 3, and 4 in Unit 5, they're all going to be able to access it on Canvas. If you just don't mind making sure they can access a laptop. If not, let me know. I'll make sure that I have a laptop. Here are the tools and resources they may need. So just really creating the conditions to make that happen was super, super useful. Um, so I would say that's probably the biggest way to support students in a modern classroom outside of normal class time is making sure that there's a safe space with the appropriate resources for kids to continue their learning even when you're not there. You've already done most of it by building modern classroom lessons uploaded to a learning management system. So there's just kind of one last frontier, and that's just making sure that there's a physical space with an adult who can monitor them, largely for like behavior issues and just making sure that they're, you know, doing things that are appropriate. So that's the biggest piece for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is what I was getting at too. I I completely agree, like with the boundaries of what your class period actually is. The start and end of your class are not relevant to the student's learning, you know? I remember because at my school... Fourth period was sixth grade lunch, and fifth period was seventh and eighth grade lunch. And so sometimes sixth graders would walk into my seventh and eighth grade class. We mix grades in the arts classes at my school, but it was a different class, like a different prep. And because, you know, the lecture or the particular lesson isn't tied to a particular day because of the model, the sixth grader can come in, right? As long as they're not, you know, disrupting anything. They're not interrupting anything because I'm not teaching a lesson. You know, they can come in and do that and they have access to me even outside their class time. And the fact that you know, lesson four is on pace for the seventh and eighth graders today does not affect the lesson that they're on because I'm there and my time is available to them.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I always say one of the things that we should ask ourselves, particularly about traditional environments, is when we get frustrated with kids, whether or not they're actually right. (laughs) Yeah. Like a lot of times kids' complaints when I was teaching traditionally were totally valid. Yeah. Like they are slow down. And I was like you got to keep up. And it's like, what What am I even talking about? Like, you're asking me to slow down because you can't follow along. And I'm telling you to just keep up. And I also often thought about it as well from the you're falling behind catch up or you have a bunch of missing assignments. Like, if a student missed three class periods and you're just telling them to somehow do that work outside of class without instructional videos and supports, what are we really telling them? You should be able to do this work without your teacher. So basically, what's the point of school, right? So what the model does is actually create the conditions where working outside of the confines of a normal class period are totally possible and the resources and tools are available with not a crazy amount of guidance. And it creates a really cool structure so that what I saw for my students is when they did fall behind, they took the initiative to say, hey, can I come into your classroom during this time? Hey, can I stay after school for this reason? Whereas before, like I had to beg kids to do that. I was like, can you please stay after school? You're behind. Can you please stay after school? You have a D. Can you please stay after school? I know your parents are frustrated. Now it was just like, you know, you're behind. They're like, I know I got to be here. I'll be here Tuesday from 3 to 4 p.m. And that was super cool to see kids take that initiative. But it also taught me when you give kids an actual pathway to success, they will use it. If there's no pathway, we're not actually incentivizing them or creating the structures for them to use the supports available to them. And I think that's critical to think about.
0: Yeah. All right, we're going to keep going with these questions. This next one says My district seems to want me to do a live mini lesson and then self pace. Does anyone have experience in that kind of structure and how do you handle it? Super interesting question.
1: It's hard to know whether the person or the district is expecting the live lesson to be about the thing that the kids are working on in the self paced setting.
0: That's exactly what I was going to say.
1: So, I mean, if. Yeah. What they're saying is teach a lesson on lesson three and then say, go self pace on lesson three. I would say, no, I don't have any experience at that. And it kind of is defeats the purpose of the model. What that means is you're basically just doing some self-pacing within each lesson. And even there, that's just traditional teaching. So if it's that approach, I don't have a great answer for it. If the approach is do a whole group activity or mini lesson and then break into self-pacing, now, I got a whole bunch of ideas. That is awesome. And that's what a ton of teachers do. And a few examples for how that works. One, you can just do a spiral lesson. So, you know, you're on lesson three. There was a lesson on unit two that a lot of kids struggled with. Find some sort of extension or new way to explain it or come up with an activity related to it. Engage in that activity 10, 15 minutes. And then say, great, we're done with that. Everyone, release um, and go ahead and start working on your lessons. We have a great teacher tips video about this that Kate Gaskell did about her discussion bags. I've seen in action. So many times, um, and it's super, super cool. Another common one is to do common revisions. So I did this frequently where it's Tuesday. Kids are supposed to be on Lesson 5. Some kids are there. Some kids are not. Some kids are ahead. Some kids are behind. But I'm realizing the same mistake is coming up on Lesson 4 or on Lesson 5. And I'll bring the group together and say, look, I keep seeing the same error happening here. Um, anyone who's tackled this have any ideas on how to solve this a couple kids will come up to the board or raise their hand say yeah i do we have a discussion about it we maybe have a discussion about why this is a common revision like what's the common reason that folks make this error and then we break out or you could just do like a whole group activity every single day to open class those are all great brings the kids together builds community potentially could be about self-direction self-awareness 21st century skills could be about content um, and that's the way I would think about it. Any additional thoughts, Zach? I don't have
0: much to add. I mean, I totally agree with everything you said. I What I do is very basic announcements. Like today, lesson four is on pace. You know, we look at the pacing tracker together. In the classroom, it was on the whiteboard. And on Zoom, I just share my screen and we look at the pacing tracker together. I update it live in class at the beginning and people can see what's going on. By that, I mean, I update what lesson is on pace. I don't update each kid's individual <laughs> lessons like live. That would take 45 minutes. I will say that I will sometimes do like a really quick little, not a reteach, but sort of like an add-on to the lesson that's on pace if I've already taught that class that day or maybe the day before, and I know that there was like an oversight in the video that I wish that I had taught in the video, right? I might add that as part of the announcements, but, you know, it's not like a lesson on the lesson because you're right, that defeats the purpose of the self-pacing. But yeah, all the activities that you mentioned are are great. And that's about the extent of what I do as well. So I don't have anything else to add.
1: Awesome. Great. Um, Let's take a look at this next question, which is, what are some red flags that you pay attention to that require some tinkering with the model?
0: So my first thought here was that the pacing tracker or the data you know, in our data-driven classrooms, the data on the pacing tracker can can be the red flags or it can give you the red flags. The data itself is great. But, you know, if all of your students are behind in a unit, that's a red flag. That has happened to me. And it means that the lessons are either not clear or the pace isn't set correctly. Like maybe you need to give kids a little bit more time on one or two of the lessons that, that have, become behind pace, right? That are no longer on pace. And that that can be a red flag. Another red flag is if all the kids are really far ahead. That has not happened to me yet. But if it did, I would think that all of my students were breezing through the material and it was too easy for them. And I would, you know, figure out a way to challenge them a little bit more. Um, another one that comes from the pacing tracker is if all of the kids or, a, you know, a majority of the kids have R's for revision. That would mean that, you know, I maybe I gave them an instruction that they all did following my instruction, but the instruction was misleading or unclear. And so I need to look at what I told them to do or what I taught them in the instructional video and say, oh, actually, that's not what I meant. Let me revise that myself. And uh, maybe with some clearer instructions, more students will be successful on the first try. Um, And that goes back to what I was saying before about the live mini lesson, right? If that happens in in second period, then I might mention that in third period. You know, all the students in my last class made the same mistake. So let's just make sure we avoid that mistake at the beginning of class. Um, But yeah, those are the red flags that I thought of. They come from the pacing tracker.
1: Yeah. You know, one thing I also want to bring up about the pacing tracker is a lot of times we see questions from folks being like, my students all seem to be behind. But when I taught traditionally, you know, at this point we were on pace, you know, or or I would have taught lesson four today, but you know, most of my kids aren't on lesson
0: four. I know what you're going to say.
1: And I would say two things. I'm curious. What do you think I'm going to say?
0: I think you're going to say, are you sure that the students were on pace with you?
1: Right. In the traditional setting. Totally. I mean, the first question I would say is like, do they actually learn anything or did most of the kids actually master the skills prior? The second thing I would say is you might not need to adjust the pacing. You just might need to adjust the amount of busy work kids are doing. That too. Like there's a lot of times where I have looked back on the work that I've created and I'm like, I could have cut 20% of this. It didn't necessarily contribute to the learning. It was a lot of sort of repetition. Sure, repetition and practice makes permanent. But like, it doesn't mean it's necessary, especially if I've baked in a review. And it certainly is the first thing I should consider when I want to kind of create a structure where kids can catch up more effectively. So that's one thing I would mention too about that as it relates to the red flags. A couple other red flags that come to mind and take every single one of these with a grain of salt. You know, we run an organization that deeply respect and value teachers and trust teachers. So I remember hearing a lot of these red flags when I was a teacher, and I would say they're valid until they're not valid. The first is classrooms being too, too quiet too often. I stress the too often piece. It's totally cool if a classroom for an entire class period is extremely silent because the work that they're doing requires kids to be silent. They may be writing a paper or doing a reading and it's just the type of day where it's best if kids are just quiet and productive and working. But if every day you walk into your classroom and it's super, super quiet and kids are not talking to each other, that's a red flag because it means that kids are kind of learning in silos and you have to think about the systems and structures you can put into place to ensure that kids are collaborating more. That kind of connects to with an over-reliance on the teacher. Sometimes I'll walk into a modern classroom and just see kids that are super, super reliant on the teacher. It's almost like they're in a classroom of one where it's like the teacher teaches the student, the student asks the teacher questions, and that happens 25 times. And it's like you're missing out on a huge opportunity here to actually get the kids to just explain stuff to each other. You just have to be consistent with it. That right there is, is the biggest red flag I can think of. The only other one I'd say is give kids the benefit of the doubt, but kids are crafty. and They can try to game the system. And I'll never forget a student of mine came up to me after, I think it was the third quarter, and he said, Mr. Farah, your class is is hard. And I said, great. Um, And then he said, the reason why is I can't finesse it. And I realized in that moment that I would built a classroom environment and put in the structures and the systems in place where this student who clearly was used to finessing classes and gaming classes couldn't figure it out like he had to actually just master the skills i would say that there's a lot of opportunity if you're not careful for kids to game the system and that's totally okay every time they do that it's such a great learning opportunity but it's just something to watch out for you know be careful with kids potentially finding a way to share answers on mastery checks be careful with kids who are not watching instructional videos not taking guided notes overly relying on their peers and kind of copying answers and then like finding their way through the coursework, you know, and just build the building blocks and the structures in place to catch those moments. And when you do, don't panic. Instead, use it as a fantastic opportunity to be like, hey, you know, you're going to take a test in a week or you're going to complete a project and you actually haven't mastered these skills. And I know it because if I give you this mastery check again, you're not going to be able to execute it um, and use that as a teachable moment. So those are the main red flags I, can, I think I can think of.
0: Yeah, you know, It's funny that the story that you just told about that student i feel like that's what i was getting at when i was predicting what you were going to say it's like in in the traditional model you know i was on a particular pace but the kids were finding ways to either keep up with me or look like they were keeping up with me i thought they were keeping up with me but i really didn't know and i remember when i went to visit your classroom at eastern you said that the model really shines a light and you might be surprised at what the light reveals when when you shine that light on the learning of a whole group of kids. And so, yeah, I, I I was surprised by how my students were working more slow than I expected, but what it taught me was that I had to accommodate them more. And so I just leaned into the model, right? I just changed the pace. I said, you can have another day for lesson four. And so, you know, it might look like a red flag, but it is, it's, it's just a red flag. It's not necessarily something that's actually bad. I also wanted to say, um, you know you you mentioned that the classroom might be too quiet uh, as a person who teaches 6th grade my my take would have been the opposite <laughs> the classroom was too loud but but again you know that's the red flag but you got to look at the pacing tracker you got to look at the data and see you know if you see the red flag talk to the teacher look at the pacing tracker talk to the students you know and see what is uh what is actually happening inside their heads you know what are they learning
1: love it fantastic all right, we got one more in us, um, Zach. I know you're excited to answer this one, so I'm going to start off with you. How do you handle the mountain of kids who need you to check their work or ask questions?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I have I have some really great structures that I've learned from other teachers for this. I will say, the younger the students are, the higher the mountain. But it actually doesn't feel like a mountain to me anymore because of the structures that I've put into place. You know, the biggest one is again the pacing tracker and i keep saying that and i and i mentioned this in our podcast episode on the pacing tracker the the pacing tracker is like the fundamental centerpiece of my class so if a student has an x on lesson 5 and another student is struggling with lesson 5 that's a resource the other student who finished lesson 5 right they're a resource and i can see it and the students can see it and so i'll just tell them you know go ask that student <laughs> If they come to me and I'm right in the middle of doing something, especially if it's a really easy question that they could just walk over and ask them, that's the biggest one is just, you know, leaning on other kids in the classroom to help you because you know that they've completed something already. And, and you were talking about this before about building in those structures to get kids to collaborate. And this has been how I do that. It really works. Kids are happy to help each other. They always want to sort of be like the teacher helper, you know, well, maybe not always. I think it's important to ask first. Especially if you're going to make them like your lesson star. So you're going to send all the kids to them. But I don't have a problem. Like if I'm sitting at a at a table with students and one kid asks me something and the kid on the other side of me has done it, just turning my head and asking the other kid, like, how did you do this? You know, it's a very quick, informal interaction that is an authentic collaboration. Another one that I learned from Shane Donovan, who has been on the podcast before, was to put up a list on the whiteboard, right? I need help and the kids write their names under it. And depending on how I structure my time in class, if I'm walking around helping kids, I'll go in that order. But if a kid comes running over to me and wants to ask me something, you know, unless it's really urgent, like if it's an emergency, obviously fine. But if it's, if it's about a lesson, you know, I'll say, put your name on the board and I'll get to you. And that's been a really great structure as well. That's obviously not so much the case in virtual school. (laughs) That's, um, an in-person thing, but Setting up a sort of a an ordered line, basically, of students that I can check in with one at a time, and making sure that I get to as many of, of them as I can.
1: I love it. I love it. I don't actually those. I mean, those two to me are the best strategies that I've seen in action. That's not to say they are literally the best, but they're the ones that I've seen at scale. Couple thoughts on both of them. First of all, on the put your name on the board model, where you know you have a question, kids puts their name. Um, I learned that strategy from Demi Logger who's an awesome mentor. And one of my favorite things that she did was she actually color coded it with the red, orange, and green, like the stoplights. Have you seen this Zach? Yeah,
0: I've seen her. I've actually seen her doing it.
1: Yeah, no. And I, what was so fun about that is kids didn't actually use it all that well. I mean, they were great about putting their names up. Um, but what they weren't great about is the idea was that the red was, this is urgent. The, Orange was like, I'd like your support, but I'm not freaking out. And the green was like, whenever you get a chance. And kids were so bad at actually classifying. Everyone just put their questions in red. And it just led to really interesting discussions around how you prioritize and actually measure the urgency of something. And it also, like I was sitting there and I remember watching the class thinking, whoo I would have been so bad at that. I would have thought everything was red. I still think everything's red. I thought that was a super cool thing. That is really, really powerful. The second one is on the collaboration piece. I think I probably told both of these stories at some point in the podcast. So if listeners are like, Kareem, shut up. You've just said this before. I apologize. But I want to stress the fact that getting kids to collaborate, like you have to really prove to them that they can learn the content by collaborating with each other. So when I was in a situation where some of my high school students were so reliant on me, I mean, I I was a, I think I called the pinball effect where I was just like bouncing from kid to kid, table to table, student to student. And just answering questions. And I was like so tired. And I was like, what is going on? Why am I answering so many questions? And I realized the kids were taking for granted that they just had so much access to me that they were just going to ask me questions whenever they had them. So one day I walked in. I just said, I'm not speaking to anyone today. But you still have to be working through your content. They were furious. They were so mad at me for saying I wasn't going to talk to them today. And I took out a clipboard and I said, I'm just going to take notes on how you handle this. And that even made them angrier because they were like, what do you mean? So you're just not going to answer questions, but you're going to observe us. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And I'm going to give you feedback on your capacity to handle navigating this learning environment when you don't have the teacher to rely on. And what it ended up doing was actually created a structure for them to truly realize that they could lean on each other and achieve pretty great things. So I wouldn't underestimate sometimes that you have to take a hard line and show the kids and allow the kids to prove to themselves that they can actually just collaborate with each other and that they don't actually have to ask you all the questions that they have and that they're going to be just all right. So that's the other thing I'd add there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I can't overstate like how pervasive that has to feel also, in my opinion, in the classroom, like constantly sending kids to other kids constantly, if a kid asks me a question, I'll ask another kid the same question who's already finished that lesson as if I didn't know the answer. Genuinely. You know, I mean, I probably do know the answer, but it's just, you're right about showing them that it can happen. And it just has to be part of the culture of your classroom. It has to be pervasive. It has to feel like everyone there, particularly those who have finished a lesson that you're working on, are a resource. And I think that, I mean, the model gives us that uh, that that structure because you can do that. You can look at the facing tracker and see. And it's really a fantastic, it's a fantastic change to the feeling of being in the classroom, I think, when you look around and see kids relying on each other, as opposed to relying on, on me, I guess. Um, it feels like they've learned a lesson that I didn't actually ever teach them. They've just sort of learned it. Uh, and it's the right lesson.
1: Totally. Cannot agree more. Awesome. Well, as usual, Zach, I think these are super, super fun to do. I do too. I find them really, really interesting. So uh, I strongly encourage folks if you're if you're listening to this right now, just go to modernclassrooms.org backslash ask MCP and capitalize the MCP by the way, because I spent 20 minutes yesterday wondering why I couldn't find the webpage that we had made, and then realized I didn't capitalize it. um, And when I was typing it out, so it's capital MCP and just put your questions in there and we'll get to them. We're going to try to do these every few weeks. So we love to see these questions build up and and to be able to ask them um, to be able to address them. So I know Zach and I truly enjoy this. Um, I, I look forward to these Wednesdays where I can just talk through really interesting questions with you, Zach. So it's been super fun as usual. So thanks for jumping on. Absolutely. I enjoy it too. I love these. Awesome. And uh, as always, folks, you can access our materials at www.modernclassrooms.org, our free course, learn.modernclassrooms.org. You know, the summer's around the corner. It's probably one of the most popular times for teachers to actually just dig into the free course. So if you're an implementer of the model, fantastic. You may want to dig back in. Um, If you know folks who just haven't really learned about our approach yet, the summer's a great time to share our free course with them and just let them know it's available. Um, if you're gearing up for our summer institute we're excited to have you we are pretty much when this episode will play we are going to have been closed on registration we are full for the summer Um, but that does not mean you can't be a part of our virtual mentorship program we train teachers throughout the school year as well so don't hesitate to reach out to our team if you're interested Um, and as always it's wonderful to be able to share insights and thoughts with folks and we love answering your questions so until next time bye everyone bye kareem
0: Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast.